Welcome to our uh, continued study in the book of Lamentations. So if you'll turn with your, me and your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 2. And as you're uh, finding it, let me just briefly recap um, uh, what we talked about last week as we started this book of Lamentations, uh, which as we, uh, in my introduction last week, talked about how it contains five very highly structured poems presenting uh, a first-hand reaction to the destruction of Jerusalem. Each poem has 22 standas, mirroring the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, and the poem in chapter 1, like those of the first four chapters, uh, was an acrostic poem with each stanza beginning with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's an A to Z structure or Aleph Tatav, uh, to be more precise. Uh, it is both a mnemonic, mnemonic device uh, to, to make the poem easy to remember, um, but it's also a means to, to force both the author and reader to process the contents very carefully. So last week we saw how the first poem, grieved over the destruction of Jerusalem by the city's adversaries and by Yahweh, it laments the ongoing anguish of people who identify with the city, recognizes that the city's rebellion justified Yahweh's actions, but pleads to God to look at its suffering and finally to take action against its devastators. Although it does not begrudge the action of its human devastators, or, or while it does begrudge the action of its human devastators, it does not complain about Yahweh's action, nor does it imply that the calamity was insect excessive. Instead, the female personification of Jerusalem admits, the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. Chapter 1 presented laments from two different perspectives we saw. The first half provided the angle of a witness who spoke about what has happened to Zion from a third person position of a concerned onlooker, while the second half switched to the more first person perspective which focuses on this Miss Zion's own feelings of grief. It speaks to more of Yahweh's responsibility for what had happened while acknowledging that he was in the right and relates her appeals to the people and to Yahweh to look and for Yahweh to act against her attackers. In substance, these two different perspectives or two voices do not express differing points of view, but look at the events and situations in the same way with the same theological perspective. Now last week I mentioned that a lot of people like to take um, the Book of Lamentations and try to like fit it into the five stages of grief, this kind of psychological model. And those five stages, just to, to if, if you've forgotten college psychology, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And maybe it's chapter two that makes them kind of like, all right, there are five chapters, five stages of grief, and anger <laughs> is absolutely the center point of chapter two. The problem, though, the anger isn't the peoples or the people uh, who've suffered the calamity. The anger on display is God's anger against his people that has brought this calamity upon them. Although God's anger is referred to in other chapters in Lamentations 2, we find a most detailed and resolute treatment. There are 40 descriptions of God's judgment and anger in the first 10 verses. 
And that, I think, is, is something I, I want us to wrestle with as I read it and then as we talk about it. Um, one of the reasons I think Lamentations is so effective it, to its, in its ministry to those who are suffering or dealing with loss is that it deals head-on with the anger of God. It describes the horrific nature of the calamity and expresses the insight that this devastation issued from Yahweh and from his anger. It reflects the poets coming to terms with the reality of God's anger, and it seeks to help other people come to terms with that reality. It reminds us that suffering is not due to some blind, brute, dumb force that happened to, to come upon us by chance. Rather, suffering is an intensely personal experience. As Walter Kaiser so aptly put it, the penalty we pay for removing God's anger from this kind of suffering will be the loneliness of being hit by a depersonalized grief in which we are objects being bombarded by blind chance and impersonal forces. That kind of world is scary and lonely. Since Yahweh is the one who has sent this judgment, he is the only one who can comfort and aid Zion, uh, encouraging her to pour out her distress and prayer, even as the poet uh, encourages her to do so. So with that as a word of introduction, let me read for us Lamentations chapter 2. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground and dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. He has killed all those who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation, has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of a of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying he caused rampart and wall to lament. They languish together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her kings, her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. 
the young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine, as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it, we see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter, o, o wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised my, my enemy destroyed. Thus far, the reading of God's Holy Word, may he bless it uh, as we speak of it this morning. And I realized I never prayed, so let me pray. <laughs> Gracious God, um, uh, as we uh, encounter this passage, um, we encounter your righteous anger and wrath uh, as you poured it out upon sinners. Lord, help us not to shy away uh, from that hard truth, um, to pretend that it doesn't exist. Um, but help us uh, to, to see it fully. Um, for indeed, uh, our hope is that the wrath that our sin deserves, that the destruction that our sin deserves, uh, that wrath and destruction that we see in this chapter, um, that wrath uh, was poured out not on us, but on your Son, who uh, out of your love and justice um, took our sin upon himself, that we might have eternal life, that you 
were faithful and are faithful to your covenant promises, uh, even when we disobey and stray. Lord, we thank you for uh, the gifts that we receive in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, most of all, uh, the gift of uh, your Holy Spirit um, that resides in our hearts. May that Spirit uh, teach us this morning, we pray, as we study your word together. And we ask this in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so the first, uh, again, if we kind of like pay attention to pronouns and, um, and, and sort of like see who, who's being described, the first 10 verses of this chapter present a third-person view of what has happened to Jerusalem. But as we saw that third-person view last time, it was focused on um, what was happening in Jerusalem, whereas the first 10 verses of this chapter and the subject of those verses is God and what he did to his people. So the third person is describing what God has done to his people. Um, so as we look at these first 10 verses particularly, um, what actions does God take in these verses, and why did he take those actions? So as we look at this picture of God's anger and wrath and judgment against his people, yeah, what, what stands out to you? Yeah, Ronnie. Yeah, and and like, yeah, we can't think of anything more horrible than that. And there's a lot of question: is that part there metaphorical? or literal, like were mothers really consuming their own children, or is that just a, a, a poetic description of the, the depths of suffering and uh, hunger and want that they underwent in the city? Like, there's a debate on that. And again, it's hard with poetry. What, what do we take literally and what's merely figurative? But the figure itself shows just how brutal um, uh, it was for people who underwent this judgment that is from God. And to your second point, like it is, it's describing how fierce the anger of God is against uh, sin. And lots of people like struggle um, with that. Like if you look in like one of the earliest heresies in the church um, uh, that was promoted by the, this um, man named Martian. Um, Marcion, um, you know, read the Old Testament and said, God cannot possess anger like that. So that must be some semi-god. He called him the demiurge, um, that the God of the New Testament comes and fights again. But that is, I think, is um, taking away this, this attribute of God. He is righteous in his anger. And I think one of the reasons we struggle is because um, whereas God's anger is always limited by his love and justice, our anger exceeds the banks and overflows and goes beyond in to, to revenge and to and um, our anger turns in turns into injustice. So it's hard for us um, to to 
relate to this understanding of, of God's anger. For us, anger uh, is something that we have such difficulty controlling and keeping within its bounds, whereas, um, you know, uh, we were studying in um, Deuteronomy this week, and uh, it was the passage um, where God is laying out instructions for punishments and cases um, and, and how many um, lashes a person can receive. And it's up to 40, but you cannot exceed 40. Uh, and we talked about like anything more than 40 suddenly turns a just judicial decision into an unjust one. Um, like to, so to exceed the bounds, which is why um, uh, Jews, by the time of the New Testament, would, would prescribe 39 lashes because they didn't even want to come close to that threshold of, of exceeding what God has, has told them to do, which is why Paul says, five times I received 40 lashes minus one. Um, that's what he's talking about, that Deuteronomic um, provision. And we can think about God's justice being poured out. It is like that. It is up to the limit and no more. Um, but it is, it's awful in, in its reality, and it's awful for those who are experiencing that judgment of God, as we see in these verses. Yeah, everything they have used to support themselves, and I like that, every place they normally would have looked to comfort. Um, the city of God, the temple that's within that city, the Davidic kingship, the law, the Sabbath, sacrifices, um, you know, uh, all their leaders, and notice how they're all mentioned in this chapter. Priests, prophets, kings, elders, all listed, all gone. So everything that they have, have Everything that God has given them, and notice like when he's talking about the sanctuary, it's his sanctuary. Uh, it's his footstool. It's that place that's supposed to connect heaven and earth uh, together. Um, but instead of, as, and we saw this a lot in Jeremiah, instead of seeing that that temple is supposed to be the thing that, that takes them to God, they think the temple has become like a thing in itself. And, and a thing that they revere and can count on. And, and we saw that in Jeremiah, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They've, they've in, it, rather than using these things as mechanisms to, to bring them to God, they've turned them into idols that, in a sense, have replaced God. You know, they think they're um, untouchable because they're in the temple. They think they're untouchable because they have a Davidic king 
They think they're untouchable because they dwell in this, uh, this blessed city of Jerusalem. And you know, they, they want the benefits of God without doing the things that God has commanded. So um, yeah, it really is, it's, a, it's not just like, and I, I, like it's not just a city that's been devastated. There are lots of cities that have been devastated. Um, there are cities being devastated right at this very moment. Um, but it's, it's also the things and the supports, spiritual, psychological, that, that what that city represented. So it's the physical destruct, destruction coupled with the theological and spiritual meaning of all these things that you so uh, um, aptly listed. All these things that they would normally turn for support and those are gone. So it's not just physical destruction, but the theological uh, loss that accompanies that. Good, what else um, strand, stands out to you about how the wrath and anger of God is being depicted in these verses? Yeah, Grant. Or every time a watchtower kills people, well, what would they do to deserve that? Like, as we see in the New Testament. Yeah, at least to that point, there's at least an appropriateness, even if we can't say immediately, God, judge, you know, us and make this thing happen in our lives. We ought to be reminded that God is the judge and judgment comes. So at a minimum today, we don't apply that. But I guess back to the Lamentations, they, there was no question. Yeah, and notice, like, like you know, it's when they give their complaint, their complaint is about those human instruments of judgment. Um, that, and when they're calling for redress, they're they're not assigning, you know, like that that God <laughs> has exceeded his bounds. They've, in a sense, accepted his perspective that the human instruments have exceeded the bounds that, and and therefore. Just as we saw Jeremiah, you know, again, tell the people, you know, um, cooperate with Babylon or you'll be destroyed. They don't. Um, so he's, you know, again, pro-Babylonian. But then at the end of the book, he's like, no, Babylonia, Babylon, their arrogance, their refusal to, to worship God, um, their uh, excess in bringing judgment, all that brings them liable to judgment. So when we get at the end of this chapter, that's who they're calling. And we saw the same thing at the end of chapter one, like don't let my enemies continue to triumph like this. Um, but the reality is if the enemies are smiling, it's because God has given them this moment to smile over his people. And, and yeah, like the application is hard, but I think what it's really pointing us to, if we have that perspective that everything comes from the hand of God then 
that's who we go to. <laughs> um, our complaint um, or our, our relief from our, our suffering and our distress isn't going to be found from those enemies who brought it upon us. It's only to be found from God. And like when we get to the middle, and, and that's what the prophet, who can console you? He's asking these rhetorical questions. Well, the answer in human terms is no one. Um, there, there's only one who can bring you consolation in the midst of this grief. Yeah, John. I mean, I, I definitely think it's, it's prophetic in the sense, like, this, like, you know, unlike chapter one where there are glimpses of comfort, there's no comfort in chapter two. <laughs> like, no explicit comfort. It's implied. But the implied comfort is coming along those lines. Um, and in order to, to understand truly the depths of what, as you say, our, our sinless Savior really did, um, the punishment that he really incurred that he didn't deserve, both physical and spiritual. I mean, like, the physical punishment, maybe we can imagine, you know, like you see people every now and then have themselves nailed to a cross uh, in emulation, and I'm not sure what the point of that is. I, <laughs> but, like, we can never know the depths of the spiritual torment that Jesus Christ underwent as he took on the full wrath of God um, that all of us deserved. Like, he's not just bearing the punishment of one man. He's, he's bearing all of this. All of God's people who have suffered this like complete devastation, he, he took that on himself to spare us from it. Um, uh, you know, and yeah, so, I mean, if it's not directly prophetic toward Christ, it's definitely preparing us theologically to understand what Christ did for us. Like, it's, it's the stone that, that, you know, on which um, Christ's work is laid, um, the, the character of, of God. And, uh, you know, and again, we tend to make light of our sin and make it less of what it is, but it's really evil. Um, I found uh, this text um, 
uh, one of my commentaries pointed me to this, this text, so I went and, and pulled it up. Um, uh, not someone normally I, I, I read, so don't. <laughs> I'm not normally reading Lactantius, <laughs> um, who was a third century church father, um, but he wrote uh, this book, uh, again, con uh, against all the, the heresies of his day um, of, that were, again, trying to remove, like Martian, trying to remove the characteristic of anger um, from God. And this is what he said. For if God is not angry with the impious and the unrighteous, it is clear that he does not love the pious and the righteous. Therefore, the error of those is more consistent who take away at once both anger and kindness. For in opposite matters, it is necessary to be moved to both sides or to neither. Thus, he who loves the good also hates the wicked. And he who does not hate the wicked does not love the good. Because the loving of the good arises from the hatred of the wicked. And the hating of the wicked has its rise from the love of the good. There is no one who loves life without a hatred of death, nor who is desirous of light, but he who avoids darkness. And he defined God's anger, uh, or he defined anger itself, not God's anger specifically, but you can see how God's anger, as a motion of the soul rousing itself to curb sin. That's probably not the way we usually think about anger, but that's how he's defining it. And we can especially, it is God's response to the evil that's in us. And our good God cannot, in the remote, turn a blind eye to that which is evil. Like, they're, they're opposites. He, it'd be like with one of my students. One turns in a great paper, another doodles on it. And if I gave them the same grade, then that I'm indifferent. Then, you know, good and evil doesn't matter. God has to punish sin. Um, the problem for us, again, is that anger can uh, and, come, and often does uh, turn to evil when it's left unchecked and without control. But God's anger is never explosive, it's never unreasonable, it's never unexplainable. It is rather his firm expression of real displeasure with our wickedness and sin. And, I, I, like, and we see this, this measure uh, response um, in, in verse 8 in particular. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. The measuring line, most often in scripture, is used when something's being built. <laughs> um, you, like, you know, you, you measure. You, you measure twice. In my case, I measure three times. And even then, I still get the cut wrong. Like, I don't know. Um, but, you know, God's justice is is being poured out um, in his anger on people, but it, is, it has a precise limit to it. Because to exceed that limit then becomes unjust. So God is bringing upon his people exactly what their sin deserves. And it's really hard um, for us as sinners to, to come to that realization. Yeah, Dave.
no, that's exactly what that, 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 that this, this temple that usually resounds with the clamor, which is a good noise, a festival, a joyful noise, rather than clamoring with the joyful noise of that festival, the enemies, these nations who are normally excluded from this temple, they are delighting and rejoicing in its destruction. So it's like a clamor festival, but not being celebrated at the temple, being celebrated in the temple as it's being destroyed. So yeah, that, that is the picture. Um, they are rejoicing to bring down. And um, like, uh, hold on, let me find my psalm reference. Um, oh, where did it go? It's a problem with like cop copying too many notes. You can never find anything. Um, psalm 48. Um, let's flip there real quick because I think there are a lot of like, you know, as we think about what the temple meant um, and, and how these enemies are talking about its destruction and saying, you know, they're saying, um, uh, is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? You can see how the temple is, is talked about and the city in Psalm 48, if I can ever like turn the page. <laughs> uh, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. That's what the, you know, this, and they're taunting. They're like, is this the joy of all the earth? Um, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Before, behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astonished. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we've heard, so we, have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. So this joy that this and beauty that the city represents, there you have these attackers mocking it um, and and like joyfully laughing at its destruction. Um, so again, it's it's not just the loss of things, but this like the mockery of others. Um, I was kind of like thinking about this, and this is like again the level my brain usually resides. Um, like the worst thing when we lived in North Carolina was not when Duke lost to UNC. The worst thing was going to church after Duke lost to UNC. Because, you know, is the glee of all these Chapel Hill and the pastor was a huge UNC fan and would talk about it. And I'm like, I come to church to get away from that. Don't, don't drag me back down. Um, but, but it's like the taunting afterwards um, is, is just as bad as the loss, you know, and suffered while you're watching it. Um, and it's that kind of like the taunting continues. And, um, and in the end, like you have the, the, pit, the people saying, you summoned as if to a festival day, my tears on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. So it's like, it is like a festival, um, these enemies gathering there. Scott. I was just going to say that uh, if we compare uh, 
So his hand has been protecting them, like that, that psalm said. Like all these nations who are terribly trembling in fear and running away, it's not because of the strength of, of Israel or Judah or the strength of the city of Jerusalem. It's because of God's presence there. It's God who's holding them off. And in this case, you know, it is. He's, he's withdrawn that hand that's held these enemies off. And now he's, he's using his hand to strike in judgment. Um, and it, again, it is his people, like, and that's the emphasis. You know, it's his temple, his people, his king, his priest. Um, and, you know, so it's not just they who, he, he's doing this to his treasures, the delights of his eye, but it's absolutely necessary to do this because he has to, to destroy that evil. His, his anger, his, his long-standing, like they've taken his long-standing patience toward them as license to sin, to keep doing the same thing. And, and his long-suffering has its, its limit, and they've, they've crossed it, and now they're suffering because of it. Keep seeing people move, and I think you're, you're, it's like you're bidding in an auction. <laughs> yeah, Dave. Yeah, and I think you really see that um, in, in verse, um, uh, verse 10. So like, you know, again, the first 10 verses are kind of presenting us, God is the subject, it's what he's been doing, and then 10, we start to switch. And, and the range here, the elders of the daughter of Zion, to your point, like daughter of Zion's still there, but we're focused on real people. They sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. So you're like in that, that stanza of the poem, from the elders to the youngest maidens, like the, everybody in the city has been affected. Soldiers, priests, prophets, kings, princes. Um, it, it's real people who suffered this devastation. Babies, yeah. And notice like, so in verse 11, that's a good point to turn to. So in verse 11, we, sh we shift to um, uh, a prophetic perspective. And the, notice the pronoun shifts. So we go from he or the Lord, he, 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 he. And then in verse 11, we get my eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. So um, here we're seeing, uh, you know, if, if this is Jeremiah or you know whoever the poet is, we're seeing how they personally are responding to the destruction. Um, so yeah, what what strikes you about the reaction that we're being given in verses eleven through uh, nineteen? We, we have this, um, the, the, the poet is speaking to us. Like, so what does the poet feel? And then what does the poet, and how does the poet instruct the people? How are they to respond? 
Well, the first thing you say from what I just read, it makes him physically sick. <laughs> um, you know, we would say he threw up. <laughs> um, you know, seeing it made him physically ill. Um, they had uh, euphemisms for throwing up just as we do. <laughs> that was one of my hardest parts when I was working on my um, dissertation was, I was like, wow, they have lots of different, like really graphic ways of describing how someone threw up. <laughs> um, uh, but um, yeah, but theirs was from seasick. This was, you know, he, he's physically responding um, his, his, he's having a physical bodily response to the spiritual distress that he's seeing befall Jerusalem and Judah. So what, it, what strikes you about how the prophet uh, is responding there? Yeah, Dave. Yeah, so the, yeah, lots of people ha have wondered about the, the babies drinking bread and wine. <laughs> uh, usually not the thing that babies are con consuming. Um, uh, hold on, I've got, uh, the count of the baby's words is figurative. One, babies don't ask questions. <laughs> uh, nor do they eat grain, nor do they drink wine. Um, and this is how one um, commentator said, perhaps the concrete expressions are a way of saying that the babies were appealing for sustenance Grain and wine could suggest the two staples that an adult would be longing for. Perhaps the question concerns whether there are any supplies left. Or perhaps wine is what a person wants in distress, like in Proverbs 31. Or perhaps wine is mentioned because water would have been too polluted to drink. Or perhaps the sound sequence with its fourfold um, words in uh, Hebrew um, create an uh, attention to the fulfillment of the curse in Deuteronomy 28.51, which refers to grain, new wine, and oil um, as, as part of what, as these curses that God says in Deuteronomy will befall his people if they sin, we see those same language, the loss of those things uh, in this city as the judgment falls upon them. Baby would cover, um, this particular word for baby is like the helpless infant. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not uh, more like um, a child who's, who is still being nursed by its mother. So that kind of idea. Well, <laughs> same way my dog asked me for things. <laughs> what do you want? I don't know. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> um, yeah, but I think it is, again, the, no one in the city is unaffected. Um, and even, uh, you know, mothers who can't feed themselves can't nurse their children. So in a figurative sense, the children are crying out. For sustenance. 
Yeah, and it's gone. So it's like a, it's so noticeable that even a baby <laughs> is is noticing what's happened. Yeah, Chris. Yeah, and they're bringing about the curses that God all along said would ha be happen. As, as and as you say, Jeremiah, for forty years, has been telling us, and he doesn't. Like I, I get it. I think that is instructive for us to not adopt the. <laughs> See, I told you this was going to happen. I've been telling you for forty years. Uh, you know, you don't get your act right. This is what's going to happen to you. And ha ha. See, it happened to you. That's not his perspective. His perspective is he gets physically ill as, at seeing this, because he does. He, he loves his people, and God loves his people. That's why he sent prophets like Jeremiah to, to, to talk, to tell them, to warn them. Um, and it's their refusal to listen. Um, uh, this, this line, um, hold on, uh, verse 14 uh, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes. Like that's what prophets are supposed to do, like that restore. Like we think of restoration as something that happens after a loss. He's saying, no, you could have been restored without suffering the calamity. And it's the irony that had you listened you know, you could have experienced the restoration that, again, comes only from God, um, and you could have experienced it without undergoing all this. You, if you, if, if prophets had truly spoken, truly warned you, the problem was your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They've not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. And the word misleading there is like whitewashed. So it's like, you know, people who ha whose houses have like some severe structural problem and they just put a coat of paint over it. <laughs> um, slap up a new uh, layer of wallpaper. Um, and, and it's that kind of idea. They've whitewashed the people's sins. They've whitewashed the danger that they are exposed uh, their danger of exposure to God's judgment and wrath, and and the people have suffered because the prophetic word ha has failed um, because they, these false prophets have been false. They've been deceptive. They've been misleading. Um, and, you know, if we think back into the book of Jeremiah, it's it's people like 
um, Hananiah, um, who, you know, ha had gone, spewed out claptrap. Um, these were worthless prophets who told the people who wanted to what the people wanted to hear rather than exposing their sin and guilt, rather than dealing with these structural sins that are going to destroy the, this, the, the edifice of this nation, they've just whitewashed it over. Um, and then the collapse inevitably comes. But it, he's saying, like, it, and we talked about this when we were doing Jeremiah, his offer to them to be restored if they turn away from their sin and turn to God was genuine. Had they listened, this would not have befallen them. They steadfastly, stubbornly refused and experienced the effects of their refusal. Somebody. <laughs> like being like you guys, like all the prophets have been warning, like all this time, and you've killed all the prophets, and you've killed Jesus. I don't remember which prophet it was. Um, I think it's Stephen. Yeah, I think it's Stephen. Then they kill him. <laughs> No, no, and the, I think the big picture, again, is where this we should absolutely be slotting this. Because so often, we've seen people who are offended by this description of God. Uh, oh, God can't be that angry. Uh, and, like, like, there's so many verbs in here that in Hebrew, Hebrew has this way of, like, intensifying the verb. So it's not just, like, um, you know, hold on, let me find one. Um, you know, it, it, it's not just, like, he is cut down in, in fierce, like he is like, <laughs> you know, it, it's not, it's like one fell blow kind of cut, like as severe a cut as you can give cut down, like all the way to the, you know, to the root level, like kind of cut down. And so it's a very intense picture of God's wrath and anger. And lots of people are like, I, I don't like that God. Like, I don't, I don't want to have anything to, to do with that God. But as you say, it's, that is the same God we see in the pages of the New Testament. We have to understand, one, our sin really is like this, and it really does deserve the full wrath of God. And praise the Lord that he sent Jesus Christ to take that wrath for us by giving us the pattern over and over again. And by us agreeing <laughs> with the truth of the pattern, it absolutely sets us up to, to fall on our knees before Jesus Christ, um, knowing we have no hope 
Like, and, it, and we get those, those rhetorical questions. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? And the implied answer is no one. Um, but the, no human can. Um, but it's pointing us to the one who can. Um, and we, but we have to, to see like that absolute, we have no hope anywhere else in order to be rightly positioned to, to see our one true hope um, when it confronts us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, but, but, but you're absolutely right. You have to see it in the, and see the pattern, how it's repeated over and over again. And I think that's why the pattern is there in Scripture, so that when we flip the page to the, to the Gospels and see our Savior described, we are prepared for what's happening. Otherwise, we're like Peter. Oh, that's never going to happen. <laughs> like, uh, you know, Jesus, really, you know, like, no. <laughs> it has to happen. It has to. Because, again, a perfectly good God cannot tolerate evil. It has to be eliminated in order for God's goodness to reign supreme. Um, but his love and justice meet together at the cross to spare us from his divine, righteous anger and wrath. All right, that seemed more eloquent than I have ever been. No, um, uh, but it seems like a good point to, to stop. And I actually want to end, and as I read this, this is the app, both a prayer and application. So I'm, I'll be praying, but, but listen, and I'm going to pray. This is um, how Calvin... Um, ended one of his lectures on chapter 2, and I think it is both um, uh, instructive uh, for us, um, but as well as uh, gives us the, the picture of the attitude we need to adopt. So here's the words of Calvin uh, as I pray. Grant, almighty God, that though thou chastises us as we deserve, we may never yet we may yet never have the light of truth extinguished among us, but may ever see, even in darkness, at least some sparks which may enable us to behold thy paternal goodness and mercy, so that we may especially be humbled under thy mighty hand, and that being really prostrate through a deep feeling of repentance, we may raise our hopes to heaven and never doubt, but thou wilt at length be reconciled to us when we seek thee and thine only begotten Son. Amen.